Charles Bishop Keralt was born on September 10, 1934, in Wilmington, North Carolina. When Charles was nine, his family moved to Charlotte. His father, a state social worker, would sometimes take young Charles on house calls across the state. He would tell Charles stories about wherever they were, and Charles loved those trips and those stories. He once won a children's sports writing competition for a local Charlotte newspaper by writing about a dog that got loose on the field during a baseball game. Even back then, Charles just saw things differently. When he was just 14, Charles Corralt was broadcasting baseball and football games on WAYS Radio in Charlotte. That year, he was one of four National Voice of Democracy winners, which won him a $500 scholarship. Voted most likely to succeed by his high school graduating class, Charles went on to become editor of the Daily Tar Heel at the University of North Carolina. After UNC, Keralt worked for the Charlotte News and wrote a column called Charles Keralt's People, in which he described the lives of everyday people around town. In 1957, Keralt moved to New York City, where he took a job at CBS. By 1959, he had become the youngest CBS correspondent ever. He was just 25. He would become the chief correspondent in Latin America and the chief West Coast correspondent. Keralt covered wars in the Congo, Laos, and Vietnam, as well as covering school integration at home. In 1967, Keralt accompanied Ralph Pleistet as he tried to make the first undisputed surface conquest to the North Pole. His first attempt failed, but he succeeded on his second attempt. Recounting this journey led to Keralt's book, To the Top of the World. When he returned from the North Pole trip, Charles sat down with CBS president Dick Salant and asked if he could just wander for three months and see what he could find. Salant asked what he thought he would find out there, to which Keralt responded, quote, farmers bringing in their crops, first graders starting school, country fairs, town meetings, pulse of America, you know? He got the go-ahead and set off. Wary of covering war and peace marches, wishing to escape hawks and doves, Gurus and acid rock, I took to the road, he said. The first segment they did, On the Road, was about kids in New England playing in the fall leaves. The switchboard at CBS lit up like a Christmas tree. This was the first of more than 500 episodes of On the Road with Charles Keralt, as three months turned into 20 years. He would later remember, quote, I didn't want a place to live. I had nothing to do there. I didn't want days off. I had no way to fill empty days. All I wanted was stories. The wilder, the better." End quote. And he was great at finding stories, although it would be hard to call them news. Charles Corralt did stories about boat builders and soda pop brewers, flower gardens and mailboxes. And one of my favorites, a man who got up every day, stood on the side of the street and just waved at people as they passed. Someone once described Charles Keralt as humbly inquisitive, and I think that about sums it up. But I also think he just liked people. He knew that everyone, deep down, has a story to tell. A story they've waited their whole lives for someone to come along and just ask the right question. Charles Keralt not only knew the right questions to ask, but also how to ask them. I have resolutely pursued irrelevance there on the back roads, he once said. 
To celebrate the bicentennial, Charles Kuralt and his crew produced On the Road to 76. Each week they did a new story from a different state until they hit all 50. In 1979, Sunday morning producer Chad Northfield decided he wanted Kuralt to host the show. They drank a bottle of apple brandy that Northfield had liberated in the Battle of the Bulge. We toasted each other, Charles said. I got drunk, and he talked me into it. Charles Kuralt really was my kind of guy. He did Sunday morning for 15 years. In 1994, at age 60, Kuralt retired from CBS. The next year, he narrated a documentary on the Revolutionary War, and in 1997, he agreed to do a 90-second broadcast three times a week called An American Moment about life in small-town America. Sadly, on the 4th of July, 1997, Charles Kuralt died of complications due to lupus at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He was 62. Charles Kuralt was one of the great ones, one of those rare journalists who have a way about them that can't be duplicated. He saw the best in us and shared it with the world. He brought joy into our homes for many years. I love watching old episodes of On the Road, and so often when I write, it is Charles Kuralt's voice I hear in my head. He knew this country better than almost anyone and has definitely been one of the key inspirations to the journey I am currently on. At the end of his book, he wrote, quote, We have a story we're headed towards, but we hope we never get there. We hope we'll stumble into something more interesting along the way. There's a long road ahead of us. We don't know where we'll be spending the night. Story of my life, Charles. Story of my life. I have loved traveling around your home state of North Carolina. And this episode is dedicated to you. Wherever you are, I hope you're still on the road. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. This week, I'm coming to you once again from the beautiful state of North Carolina. As I wind up the five weeks I've spent here, I can honestly say it wasn't nearly enough time. North Carolina is such a big and diverse state. I have walked on beautiful beaches, skied the mountains in the west, met wonderful people, and generally just had a really good time. One of the best experiences I had was at the barber shop in tiny Drexel, North Carolina, where a bluegrass jam session has been held in the back room every Saturday for 50 years. It was wonderful to be there, and it was there that I recorded the music for this week's podcast. I know you'll enjoy it as much as I did, and if you're ever in the area, stop in. I'm sure they'll be glad to have you. If you want to read more about the Drexel Barbershop or to learn more about me or my slow journey around the United States, head on over to my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. For now, though, sit back, relax, and enjoy these stories from Southern North Carolina.
If I were to ask you to name a pirate, I'd be willing to guess many of you might come up with the name Blackbeard. Blackbeard was famous in his day and has, through lore and legend, become infamous in history. You may even be able to conjure up a picture of him in your head, sword by his side, long black hair blowing in the wind as he pilots his boat, Queen Anne's Revenge, through the tropical waters of the Caribbean. What you might not know is that the infamous pirate Blackbeard lived and died in North Carolina. Born sometime in the 1670s or 80s in England, most likely in Bristol, we don't know much about his early life. We know he was literate, so may have come from a reasonably successful family, and it's quite possible that to protect them he changed his name. We know him as Edward Teach, or perhaps Edward Thatch. It's also likely that he went to sea at an early age and learned his way around a boat from some very experienced sailors. It is believed that he sailed to the Caribbean in the early 1700s under the British flag during the War of Spanish Succession. He probably worked as a privateer and set about trying to capture and plunder Spanish ships. To the British, he was a privateer. To the Spanish, he was a pirate. Likewise, a Spanish privateer was a pirate to the British. Semantics, really. These men were charged with taking as much as possible from the opposing fleet. Their pay? A share of the spoils. At the end of the war, Teach probably wound up in Jamaica, and then made his way to New Providence in the Bahamas, the center of piracy in the Caribbean at that time. While there, he met and joined the crew of another well-known pirate, Ben Hornigold. By 1717, Teach was captaining his own ship and serving as Hornigold's second-in-command as the two and their crew plied the Caribbean picking off ships and plundering them. They took at least eight merchant ships during this time and also came in contact with another pirate, Steed Bonnet, called the Gentleman Pirate. Born to a wealthy English family in Barbados, Bonnet was educated, married, and had three kids. Deciding he didn't like family life, he changed paths. He had a ship built, armed it, hired a paid crew, and essentially bought the command of a pirate ship. With little actual knowledge of boats or how to captain one, he got in trouble trying to overtake a Spanish man-of-war. He was wounded, and his boat and crew sustained serious damage. With Bonnet's permission, Teach took over his ship, called Revenge, and Bonnet became a guest, much more his speed, no doubt, given his upbringing. Hornigold and Teach soon added a fourth ship to their fleet and sailed for the Delaware Bay. Within the Delaware Bay sat the city of Philadelphia, which would grow to be the largest city in the British colonies, but at the time was still smaller than Boston. But it was a busy port and much further south. Within just a few weeks, the pirates had plundered at least 15 ships, quite a haul, and returned south to the Caribbean. During this time, the pirates heard that the king was offering a pardon to pirates who gave up their ways. An aging Hornigold chose to take it and departed, leaving Teach with revenge and the fourth ship. In the fall of 1717, Teach sailed to St. Vincent, where he captured La Concorde, a French ship carrying 500 slaves, 
This should give you some idea of the size of the 200-ton vessel. Teach outfitted it with 40 guns and renamed her Queen Anne's Revenge. Now with three ships, they stopped the ship Adventure off of present-day Belize, and the captain, David Harriet, agreed to join forces. Now with four ships and 250 crew, Teach wreaked havoc on Spanish ships in the Gulf of Mexico and British ships in the Caribbean. The Spanish called him El Gran Diablo, the Great Devil. The British called him Blackbeard. In the spring of 1718, Blackbeard took his armada north and blocked the harbor of Charlestown, now Charleston, South Carolina. For six glorious days, the pirates took anything and everything they could from every ship entering or leaving Charlestown. By June of that year, they were sailing into Topsail Inlet, sometimes called Beaufort Inlet, when Queen Anne's revenge ran aground. Attempting to save her, Adventure also ran aground. The ships were emptied as best they could be and deserted. From there, Blackbeard, Steed Bonnet, and some of their crew made their way to Bath, North Carolina. Both Blackbeard and Bonnet turned themselves in and received a pardon from Governor Charles Eden. Blackbeard bought a house, and local legend says he married. He went to dinner parties and rubbed elbows with the North Carolina elite, regaling them with stories of the high seas. I'm sure it was a merry old time. As a side note, Steed Bonnet returned to pirating. He was captured, escaped, was captured again, and on December 10, 1718, was hanged in Charlestown. At this point, Blackbeard had only one ship, the fourth of his fleet, which he renamed Adventure. He would often sail down the Pamlico River to set anchor off the coast of Ocracoke Island. He may have plundered a few French ships here and there, but by August, he was bored of all this amnesty. He returned to the lucrative Delaware Bay and resumed his pirating. The governor of Pennsylvania issued a warrant for his arrest. He turned back south to North Carolina. Not trusting North Carolina to do anything, the governor of neighboring Virginia, Alexander Spotswood, issued a proclamation. He ordered all pirates to make themselves known, give up their arms, and not travel in groups larger than three. When Blackbeard didn't come in, Governor Spotswood sent his navy to take him, dead or alive. He sent out Lieutenant Robert Maynard with two well-armed ships and 57 men. Not finding Blackbeard in Bath, they sailed for tiny Ocracoke. As the two ships came into the inlet, they caught Blackbeard and his skeleton crew of maybe 19 men off guard. They fired on adventure. Blackbeard turned his ship sideways and returned fire. His huge collection of cannons did serious damage, and Blackbeard and his crew boarded Maynard's boat and engaged them in hand-to-hand combat. The story goes that Blackbeard and Maynard at one point were engaged in a classic pirate sword battle when one of Maynard's men came at Blackbeard from behind and slit his throat. Maynard's men closed in on the pirate and finished the job. Their report stated Blackbeard had 20 sword wounds and five bullets in him when he finally fell over dead on the deck. Maynard beheaded Blackbeard and hung his head from the bowsprit of his sloop as proof he had hit his mark. Blackbeard's body was cast into the sea. 
The remainder of Blackbeard's crew surrendered, and many more who were not there were tracked down in Bath. They were transported back to Williamsburg, Virginia to stand trial. All were found guilty, were hanged, and left to rot on public display. Having heard this pirate tale, it will probably seem hard to believe that all of this transpired from Blackbeard joining Ben Hornigold to his death off the coast of Ocracoke in less than two years. During this time, Blackbeard plundered at least 40 ships. He was an intimidating character, tall, dark, and sea-worn. He would often light slow-burning fuses and tie them in his hair to make it look like his head was smoking. His reputation preceded him, and he often took his prey without a fight. In fact, there is no record and little evidence of him ever torturing or murdering his victims. The remains of Queen Anne's Revenge were discovered off the coast of Beaufort in 1996. 280 years at the bottom of the inlet had taken its toll, but more than a quarter of a million artifacts have been recovered. Many are currently on display in the wonderful Maritime Museum in Beaufort. Blackbeard's body may have sank into the Atlantic Ocean off of Ocracoke Island in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, but his legend certainly lives on in our collective imagination. Blackbeard, to many, was not a pirate, but the pirate. If I were to bring up the topic of American gold rushes, most people would probably think of 49ers heading west to California, or perhaps the hardy souls making their way north to the Klondike or Alaska. It might, therefore, surprise you to know that the first gold rush in America actually happened much earlier, and it happened in North Carolina. John Reed was a German soldier of fortune who came to the New World to fight with the British during the Revolution. He deserted his unit in Savannah and made his way west and north into North Carolina, settling in Mecklenburg County near Meadow Creek. He built a small farm, got married, and had kids. One fateful Sunday in 1799, his 12-year-old son, Conrad, skipped church to go fishing with some friends in Little Meadow Creek. Spotting something shiny in the creek, he waded in for a closer look. He picked up the shiny rock, but wasn't sure what it was. He brought it home and showed his family, and they all liked it too. They decided it would make a lovely doorstop, and there this 17-pound hunk of gold would sit, propping the reed's door for the next three years. John was always curious about the rock his son found, though, and in 1802, when he had to travel to Fayetteville, he brought it with him. He showed it to a jeweler, who immediately recognized its value. The jeweler asked John how much he wanted for the rock. Thinking quickly, John shot for the moon and asked for $3.50, a week's pay in 1802. The jeweler would quickly accept and hand over this huge sum. He would soon sell the gold for around $3,600, over a thousand times what he had paid for it. John Reed and his family continued to farm, but would often spend their downtime hunting for gold around their property. Once the planting was done, they would head down to the creek and dip a pan and see what they could find. They found enough that John enlisted the help of his friends 
and they brought their slaves to help out. One of these slaves, Peter, found a 28-pound nugget worth $6,600, a fortune in the early 1800s. News of these finds spread slowly to neighboring farmers, who would also search their properties in their downtime. These farmers were using a method called placer mining or surface mining, basically using a gold pan and shovel, or at most a primitive rocker box, to separate the heavy gold from everything else. As word spread, people with real knowledge of mining started coming to the area. As surface gold was being panned out, they started investing in load mining, which digs deeper and employs serious machinery. Immigrants with knowledge of mining techniques were in high demand, most notably those from Cornwall in England, where people had been mining for many, many years. One of the more interesting and famous participants was William Thornton. Born on my favorite island, Joost van Dyke in the British Virgin Islands, Thornton would become most famous as the architect of the U.S. Capitol in my hometown of Washington, D.C. In 1805, though, he came to North Carolina and invested in the North Carolina Gold Mine Company. North Carolina became known as the Golden State, and from 1804 to 1828, all domestic gold that was minted in the United States came from North Carolina. At its peak, more than 50 mines were in operation, employing more than 30,000 people. Gold mining was second only to farming in North Carolina in the early 1800s. So much gold was coming out of North Carolina, in fact, that in 1835, President Andrew Jackson, himself a native North Carolinian, opened a branch of the U.S. Mint in Charlotte. This would lead to Charlotte being a major financial center at the time, and later a major banking center. Subsequent gold rushes would draw skilled labor away from North Carolina, but many mining operations continued until 1915. The desperation of the Great Depression would send some people toting gold pans back into the creeks of North Carolina, with limited success. The labor needs of World War II would force the remaining mines to close, and the idea that North Carolina had once been the center of U.S. gold mining faded from memory. Recently, as the price of gold has skyrocketed, several gold mines have resumed operation around the country and the world. One such mine is the Haley Gold Mine, just across the border in Lancaster County, South Carolina, which hopes to pull $5.7 billion of pure gold out of the ground there. Perhaps if they are successful, the story of Conrad Reed and his 17-pound gold doorstop will be revived, and people will remember that the nation's first gold rush happened right here in North Carolina. Even before the American Civil War, Wilmington was the largest city in North Carolina. It also had a majority black population, including slaves and a sizable group of free people of color. Many worked at the port, but others were craftsmen like blacksmiths or worked in service trades like barbers. The Civil War took a tremendous toll on North Carolina, as it did on much of the South. At the war's end in 1865, the Union would remain intact, but also fiercely divided, perhaps nowhere more so than on issues of race. Congress passed the 13th Amendment in 1865, 
freeing the slaves. In 1868, the 14th Amendment guaranteed their constitutional protections, and in 1870, the 15th Amendment gave them the vote. The men, at least. Women's voting rights were still half a century away. Giving black men the right to vote infuriated people across the South, and they would set out immediately to try and undermine these rights by any and all means. Perhaps nowhere did this seem more urgent than Wilmington, where the black majority could bring forth tremendous changes. It was, therefore, in Wilmington that the issue would come to a head, and, in 1898, the only successful coup d'etat in American history would be carried out there. This would, at least in North Carolina, serve to undo any progress towards civil rights which the Civil War and Reconstruction had brought, and would disenfranchise the black population in the state for another 67 years. When black people in North Carolina were given the right to vote, they tended to vote Republican, the party of Lincoln. Most white Southerners at the time were Democrats, not feeling the Democratic Party had their best interests at heart, though, a group of poor white cotton farmers would break off and form the People's Party, or the Populists. By the 1890s, the Populists started working with the Republicans to form what was called the Fusion Coalition. By 1894, Fusionists started winning elections. In Wilmington, a Fusionist mayor and chief of police were elected, with overwhelming black support. A biracial government was formed, including several black aldermen. The fusionist government brought change, which was good for the middle class, for those aspiring to the middle class, and for the black population. 1896 brought even more change, including the election of a fusionist governor in North Carolina, and Democrats started to fear they would be swept in 1898. In response to this, in 1897, nine prominent wealthy Wilmington Democrats banded together to try and regain power. They put their heads together with North Carolina State Democratic Party Chair Fernifold Simmons to come up with a strategy. The strategy they came up with was simple. In order to dismantle the fusion coalition, they needed to bring one issue, and one issue alone, to the forefront. That issue was race. The supremacy of the white race would be the only issue the Democrats would campaign on. In order to spread their message, they started running anti-black propaganda in local news outlets. Simmons also recruited Alfred Waddell, a skilled orator, former lieutenant colonel in the Confederacy, and former state senator, to speak on their behalf. In one of his early speeches, he stated, quote, We will never surrender to a ragged raffle of Negroes, even if we have to choke the Cape Fear River with carcasses, end quote. He began touring the state, spreading his message of hate. The Democrats formed a militant group called the Red Shirts, which began terrorizing black neighborhoods, beating black people, and destroying their property. The fusionists tried to fight back by reminding people that it was the Democrats, not so-called Negro domination, which were the problem, that the Democrats were using the issue of race as a distraction from the real issues. To this, the Democrats doubled down, saying that if Democrats didn't win, a race riot would ensue, that many people would die, and that Wilmington would be destroyed. The Red Shirts ran parades through black neighborhoods, shooting into houses and schools. They formed white citizens' patrols to intimidate 
and attack black citizens. The Democrats joined forces with the White Labor Union, which was developed to oppose blacks competing for white jobs. As their plan progressed, Furnifold Simmons would say, quote, North Carolina is a white man's state, and white men will rule it, and they will crush the party of Negro domination beneath a majority so overwhelming that no party will ever dare to attempt to establish Negro rule here, end quote. As part of their campaign, Democratic newspapers reprinted a speech made the previous year by a Georgia woman. She had spoken out publicly about white women being raped by black men. She had finished her speech by calling for white men to better protect white women and, if necessary, to lynch black men a thousand times a week. In response, Alexander Manley, the owner of Wilmington's The Daily Record, perhaps the only black-owned daily newspaper in the country, wrote a scathing editorial. He stated that while rapists should absolutely be punished to the full extent of the law, not every instance of sexual relations between a black man and a white woman was non-consensual. He called white men hypocrites for claiming it is somehow worse for a black man to have sex with a white woman than for a white man to have sex with a black woman. Furthermore, he stated, quote, You cry aloud for the virtue of your women while you seek to destroy the morality of ours. Don't ever think that your women will remain pure while you are debauching ours. You sow the seed. The harvest will come in due time. End quote. Manley, no doubt, found this issue deeply personal, as he was the grandson of white former North Carolina governor Charles Manley and his slave Corrine. This editorial enraged the Wilmington Democrats and was reprinted across the state. The mere suggestion that white women might somehow welcome sex with black men added fuel to a fire that was already burning bright. White advertisers pulled out from the Daily Record, and the newspaper was evicted and had to relocate across town. On October 20th, the Democrats staged a political rally in Wilmington. The militant redshirts paraded through the streets, fully armed, escorting young white women. South Carolina Senator Ben Tillman taunted the crowd, saying that if any black man had dared to say such things in South Carolina, he would be dead by then. The white citizens' patrol rode through the streets with their new acquisition, a Gatling gun. Henry West, who was covering the Wilmington election for my hometown Washington Post, wrote, quote, the city might have been preparing for a siege instead of an election, end quote. Finally, election day arrived in Wilmington. The day before, Alfred Waddell had given this speech, quote, You are Anglo-Saxons. You are armed and prepared, and you will do your duty. Go to the polls tomorrow, and if you find the Negro out voting, tell him to leave the polls, and if he refuses, kill him. Shoot him down in his tracks. We shall win tomorrow, if we have to do it with guns, end quote. The redshirts blocked every road into and out of the city. When North Carolina Governor Daniel Russell tried to come to Wilmington, his hometown, and quiet things down, redshirts swarmed his train and tried to lynch him. The campaign of intimidation worked. Most blacks and many white Republicans and populists stayed home, fearing for their lives and families. Because of this, the day passed mostly quietly in Wilmington. Not surprisingly, the Democrats won. That night, the papers called for all white men to gather the next day at the courthouse. There, 
the Democrats, led by Waddell, declared that the election had given them a mandate. They read a document titled The White Declaration of Independence, which called for black disenfranchisement and promotion of white employment. It further called for the Daily Record to cease publication and Alexander Manley to be banished from the city. It gave the black community 12 hours to respond. A group of 32 prominent black Wilmington men, called the Committee of Colored Citizens, gathered and drafted a response. Respectfully, they stated they had no control over Manley or what he did. Waddell claimed he never received the response. The next morning, he gathered 500 white men at the armory, armed them, and marched them to the Daily Record. They broke the printing press and burned the building down. Thankfully, Manley had already fled the city. The mob grew to 2,000 and began attacking blacks and black businesses. Waddell led the group to confront Republican Mayor Silas Wright. At gunpoint, they demanded the resignation of the mayor, the board of aldermen, and the chief of police. They installed a new government with Waddell as mayor. The mob marched black leaders and Republicans to the train station and put them on a train out of the state. Several black people were killed and more than 2,000 would leave Wilmington, never to return. Nationwide calls came for President William McKinley to do something. McKinley, the last Civil War veteran to serve as president, did nothing. His willingness to allow the rightfully elected government of Wilmington to be forced from office at gunpoint, to allow this coup d'etat, is unthinkable. The Civil War had ended slavery, but the now free black population would have to fend for themselves for the next 65 years. Whatever protection the era of Reconstruction had given them ended on the courthouse steps in Wilmington, North Carolina, and in the burnt-out remains of the Daily Record. Alfred Waddell would remain the mayor of Wilmington until his death in 1905. The Democrats used these same tactics to win elections statewide, and would retain power by keeping blacks from voting, continuing animosity towards blacks, and maintaining the superiority of the white race in North Carolina. The North Carolina government circumvented the 15th Amendment by creating poll taxes and literacy tests. They placated illiterate and poor whites by passing laws stating that if your grandfather could vote in 1867, you too could vote, regardless if you were literate or not. We call this protection the Grandfather Clause. 62 years later, on February 1, 1960, across the state in Greensboro, four young black students at North Carolina A&T would bravely sit at the whites-only lunch counter at Woolworths. This bold act would finally challenge the legacy put in place by the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898. It would gain national attention and really set in motion the civil rights movement in North Carolina. Finally, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and in 1965, the Voting Rights Act followed. The old adage that those who don't learn from their history are doomed to repeat it is a favorite of mine. In researching this segment, I came across too many similarities to recent elections to just overlook. Instead of finding issues that unite us, politicians focus on issues that divide us and drive us apart. They use sensitive and emotional topics to rile the masses while quietly passing legislation which helps a chosen few. And yes, sadly even today, race somehow remains an issue. 
It seems like many of our politicians have studied the tactics used in Wilmington in 1898 and still use them today. Perhaps we should spend more time considering this and formulate a response so that we can move forward instead of back. Randy Bruce Trawick was born May 4, 1959, in Marshville, North Carolina. From a young age, his father, a farmer and horse trainer, pushed hard for Randy and his five siblings to play music. By the time he was eight, he was playing guitar and singing in his church choir. Trawick and his siblings entered talent contests and played the VFW, the Moose Lodge, and the Fiddler's Conventions in their area. All of his siblings would quit music, but Randy and his brother Ricky, and the two became known as the Trawick Brothers. At a young age, both Trawick Brothers started going down some dangerous roads, finding escape through drugs and alcohol. Randy dropped out of high school, and he and Ricky began having run-ins with the police. They tried to steal a van and outrun the police. They were arrested, and would be again when they broke into someone's house. Ricky, then 18, went to jail. But Randy was still a juvenile, so he got off. In 1975, in the midst of all this, Trawick, at 16, won a talent contest at a Charlotte nightclub called Country City, USA. The club was owned by a woman named Lib Hatcher, and she remembers the night she first heard Trawick sing. She was so stunned, she says, she dropped the book she was carrying. She hired Trawick as a cook and got him on stage as often as she could. When Randy was arrested again, it was Lib who bailed him out. The judge told them both that if Trawick was ever in his courtroom again, he was going to jail for a long time. They sat down and had a heart-to-heart, Trawick would later recall, quote, In her, I saw something I'd never seen before. I saw a different way of life. I got away from the booze, the drugs. I stopped fighting. Over the next few years, Lib and Trawick worked hard to make Country City USA a hit. They remodeled it in an old country-style fashion. They even brought in a mechanical bolt, which Trawick would operate when he wasn't cooking or singing. In 1978, with Lib's help, Trawick recorded a self-titled album, Randy Trawick. One of the songs from the album, She's My Woman, spent four weeks on the charts and peaked at number 91. Four years later, in 1982, Lib left her husband and Country City USA and decided she was going to dedicate herself to Trawick's career. They left Charlotte and moved to Nashville, where she got a job managing the Nashville Palace nightclub. Once again, she hired Trawick as a cook. He often came out of the kitchen to perform with the house band. Lib helped Trawick record a demo tape and sent it out to every major record label in Nashville. Every one of them rejected him. Nashville had, at that point, been pushing country into the mainstream for many years. By the 80s, they were into urban country and country pop, and Trawick's sound, he was told again and again, 
was just too country. Later that year, Trawick recorded another album, live at the Nashville Palace, under the stage name Randy Ray. Something in this album caught the ear of Martha Sharp at Warner Brothers, and she decided to take a chance on Trawick. In 1985, Trawick released a single on the Warner Brothers label. It did okay and went to number 67 on the Hot Country charts. His second song, though, went to number 6, and Warner Brothers decided to re-release his first single, which quickly went to number 1. When they released the full album, Storms of Life, it became the fastest-selling debut album in country music history. Storms of Life sold a million copies in less than a year, and has sold nearly 5 million copies to date. It also won Trawick a Grammy Award. The next year was a whirlwind for Trawick. In addition to playing 200 shows, he recorded a second album. This album had four singles that went to number one, brought home another Grammy, and won Trawick the Academy of Country Music's Top Male Vocalist for 1986. Trawick would release 20 studio albums in his career, eight of which went platinum, with two more going gold. He had 16 number one singles, won six Grammys, six CMAs, and nine ACM awards. He recorded with George Jones, Tammy Wynette, Roy Rogers, Clint Eastwood, and even B.B. King. He even starred in several movies and TV shows. He has sold over 25 million albums and became a pivotal figure in country music. Apparently, to country was just what music was looking for in the 80s, and he inspired the likes of Garth Brooks and Travis Tritt. He was elected into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2016. His unique baritone voice and combination of old-style country with contemporary ideas makes him one of the most highly regarded and easily recognizable singers in country music history. Some of you, I'm sure, have no doubt who I've been talking about. For the rest of you, though, the story is this. When Martha Sharp signed him in 1985, she didn't like the name Randy Trawick, or Randy Ray for that matter, so they changed it before releasing his first song, On the Other Hand, to the name the world would forever know him by, Randy Travis. That's it for the podcast this week. Thank you for joining me. To find out more about me or my journey around the country, check out my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, go before I sleep.com. To get the whole story, be sure you follow me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles to Go Tweet, and on Instagram at Miles to Go Before I Sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Next time, I'll be coming to you from the great state of South Carolina, so be sure you don't miss it. You can download and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast, and please share it with your friends. Music this week was recorded live at the weekly Saturday Jam at the Barbershop in Drexel, North Carolina. You can find out more by searching Drexel Barbershop NC 
on Facebook. Background music comes from Kevin McLeod over at IncomTechMusic.com and the sound effects from the great folks over at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music, as always, comes from the amazing Memphis Slim. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding. And until next time, keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.